so exciting to get to worship in this new space that we've been dreaming about and designing and building uh, for a number of years now. If you don't know, uh, our church began its gospel ministry here in Bakersfield in 1889. It goes back to the very beginning of our city. Um, this is our fifth campus uh, of more permanent residents in 129 years of ministry. Uh, there's a couple interim ones, uh, even like the one we just came from recently. Um, the three that are still strong and standing, and you probably know them well, uh, is this one now, brand new. But if you go back to the 30s through the 70s, uh, our home was the old church house on Truxton Avenue. It's now a historic landmark here in Bakersfield. It survived the 1952 earthquake, that old Romanesque bell tower there uh, across from our civil services and city hall and all that. So that's still a landmark here in town. And then we outgrew that and um, moved to Olive Drive, 5500 Olive Drive, uh, where our large 35-acre campus was um, our, our meeting space and our sending space from the late 70s until 2014. Now Valley Baptist Church has that as their satellite campus. And we were blessed and honored to get to to start fresh, to build a space that really fit us well, that was brand new and modern and thought through. And almost 20 years of pastoral ministry, it was a dream to, to really think through how ministry flows, disciple-making works, and to get to create this space. I remember early on in that search and praying about where would God put us in the city, looking around our city. It's, it's, a, it's a large expanse of space, Bakersfield is, um, but we have a lot of churches. And so just looking around and saying, God, might you put this historic and prominent church not buried in a community or on someone else's doorstep and so it was really exciting to in a big map of Bakersfield identify this corner early on as a space that maybe God might bring us and sure enough this was it so these four acres these two buildings 20,000 square feet we uh, had our ribbon cutting celebration yesterday and many uh, ministry partners in the community came to join us and and now this morning uh, June 3rd 2018 get to hold our first services and I'm just so thankful you're here it's a, it's a, it's a pleasure to have you with us uh, to worship our God our church exists for the glory of God we don't exist for ourselves this is not about us it's about him and what he is doing to transform lives by the gospel of Jesus Christ the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes in him. And we are joyful to proclaim it. We're passionate about Jesus' great commission for the church, his bride, for making disciples of Jesus. And uh, so passionate about it, um, we renamed our church to focus on that very effort, Disciples Church. Our call is to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, those that God would save, and then to teach them and raise them up to observe all that he has commanded us in his written word. This is my job as the preaching pastor here at Disciples Church, is to carry the primary responsibility of preaching God's holy word to our flock, and I love doing it. It is my passion and responsibility to fulfill the command given uh, for example, in Titus 1.9, that we would hold firm to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that I can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Here at Disciples Church, we, we value preaching God's Word as God wrote it. 
See, that's become somewhat of an anomaly nowadays as many modern preachers have fallen in love with new styles of teaching by which maybe they use a little bit of Scripture to sprinkle a 30-minute message filled with their own thoughts and ideas. We are convicted that the power of God to change lives is the Word of God. And so we long to preach His Word faithfully. I praise God for the, the Holy Spirit's work in and through the human authors that he perfectly elected to write what he wanted us to know. Church, this is the written word of God. And we are blessed to have it. I know people, groups, and languages around the world who by God's grace come to saving faith and then long for the word to be translated into their native tongue. I've watched week-long celebrations happen at the arrival of a finished translation of the Word of God into a people group's native tongue. What a blessing to see that. I don't know if we know how good we have it to have the Word of God like we do. In my 19 years of pastoral ministry, I've grown to discover that man is in love with his own ideas and agendas. I, too, am guilty in my early years of preaching of speaking messages that were filled with my own ideas and um, clever takes on life and catchy stories uh, instead of steadfast preaching of God's Word. And that kind of teaching would gather big crowds and it would entertain, it would stir emotions. But the problem is it would grow such shallow faith. Who am I to decide that I have a better idea of what the blood-bought bride of Christ needs to hear and learn about versus what God has determined we would hear and learn about. While many of my topical sermons early on were entertaining and able to draw big crowds, again, what it produced was shallow faith, people who would come and go. Thankfully, in the last decade, God has done an amazing work in and through our historic church, a a reformation of sorts, and Um, from the top down. It's been a mighty work in and through us. And with that came conviction to preach expositionally and to hold fast to the historic orthodox truths of our Christian faith, to lift them high and celebrate what's been proven over time. We've seen God work in so many lives. People coming from so many different backgrounds, different struggles, addictions, temptations, We've seen marriages get healthy, reach places they've never been. We've seen, we've seen uh, parents learn and be equipped with how to truly raise their kids, to know the Lord, to walk with Him, to, to, to enjoy that journey. And much of the modern church, we've, we've taught our people, just hand them to us, we'll do it for a while, and then they'll get bored with it after they graduate high school. And We want, we want, to, we want to get back to the roots of what God's given us in Scripture, and we've seen the transformation that has come with that the priority of disciple-making and teaching God's Word. The fruit of it's been amazing. I love how John Grudem is a theologian, modern-day theologian, who speaks of the importance of recognizing the Bible's authority for church leaders who are charged with teaching the Word of God. And we very much resonate with these thoughts. I want to share this quote with you. He says, Throughout the history of the church, the greatest preachers have been those who have recognized that they have no authority in themselves. 
and have seen their task as being to explain the words of Scripture and apply them clearly to the lives of the hearers. Their preaching has drawn its power not from the proclamation of their own Christian experiences or the experiences of others, nor from their own opinions or creative ideas or rhetorical skills, but from God's powerful words. Essentially, they stood in the pulpit, pointed to the text, and said, in effect, to the congregation, this is what this verse means. Do you see it? Do you see that meaning as well? Then you must believe it and obey it with all of your heart. For God himself, your creator and Lord, is saying this to you today. Only the written words of scripture can give this kind of authority in preaching. We agree with Grudem in this and have a strong conviction here at Disciples Church to preach verse by verse through books of the Bible. And yes, there are moments in time where we'll stop to address different matters with a little more of a topical or systematic approach. But uh, it's been a joy. It's been a joy to preach expositionally. That, that, that's a term you should know. Expositional preaching is simply preaching that is focused on explaining the meaning of Scripture within its context. The word exposition simply means setting forth or explanation. So expositional preaching is the explanation of Scripture that is based on diligent study, careful exegesis of the passage within the context of all of Scripture. This is my job. My job is not to entertain you, but to help you know and understand and apply God's holy word to your life. My hope and prayer is if you're blessed by the preaching here at Disciples Church, that you would not find yourself saying, that pastor, that preacher, man, he's, he's good. My hope and prayer, if I'm doing my job right, is that you would say, God is good. And you would be moved by him. And you would fall more in love with him. And you would be transformed by him to serve him all your days. That would be my greatest joy to see that happen. It's a joy to preach, and I love to do it. And so as we embark on this new series, we're going to start today through the letter of James. Um, I encourage you, number one, bring your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, we love to give you one um, or point you to one that, that we think is great. I like to preach out of the ESV translation. It's a word-for-word translation that I find is the easiest of the word-for-word translations to read, and it's a, it's a sound translation that we've very much been blessed by here at Disciples Church. Um, bring your Bibles. I want you to get to know it. I want, I want your pages of your Bible by the end of the sermon series to be worn out in these three pages of James as we dig in. Um, take notes. We have blank sermon notes on the back. If you're a note taker, capture what God's doing. One of my deep hopes in preaching here at Disciples Church is that our time together on Sunday morning would be a catalyst to your time in the Word throughout the week. You wouldn't be a, a one-and-done studier of the Word and just um, sit with your pastor, although that's primary and something that is, is vital to the life of the Christian, but that it would be a catalyst. It would inspire you to be in God's Word throughout the week. We recently took two years to preach through the Gospel of John. Uh, that was a historic moment in the life of our church. We've never done a series that long. The, the new school of thinking says that that's church suicide. 
Uh, back in the day, we would say, you ever do a sermon series longer than 10 weeks, people will get bored with it, you got to move on. Well, but again, that's when man's trying to come up with these clever, pithy, you know, uh, artistic series where it's filled with a lot of, of man's ideas and we're at, sprinkling a little scripture in there. But when we preach through the word and it's coming to life, I can testify to you, uh, first service had a bunch of oohs and ahs as well, in that it was a great joy for our church. For many have said maybe their favorite series we've ever done. Two years we took to preach through that text. Um, it was 80-something sermons. And a joy, a true joy for myself as well. Um, why am I excited to preach the letter of James starting today? Here's what's so cool about James. If you haven't turned there, find it. It's, it's, in, it's in the New Testament, towards the back of your Bible. It's easy to miss. Uh, you'll find it just after Hebrews. Uh, and just before First Peter, it's, it's tucked in there well. And, and one of the things I want you to notice with me this morning is that James, the five chapters of James, is only, in, a, in an average-sized Bible, it's only three pages long. I want you to notice that. But I want to set you up in that I believe we will probably take at least 30 sermons to preach this letter. We might even take a full year, and here's why. As we sat together as elders to pray and prepare for this series over this last season, we just kept looking up at each other going, there's so much good stuff here. I mean, it, it looks very to the point, and it is, and yet there's so much meat on, the, on those bones. It looks skinny, but it's not. And, and oh man, there's just so much good stuff here. And so I am really thrilled. Uh, James has been compared to the Old Testament wisdom literature books like Proverbs because of its direct instruction and counsel. It gets right to the point of wise and holy living. Um, James, one of the most popular New Testament books, uh, many over the years have said how blessed they've been to know and study the, the letter of James. Um, simply how practical it is, I think, is one of the big reasons why. Another, another interesting marker about James is that it, it contains more imperative verbs than any other New Testament book. And if I'm getting a little too um, school-based there for you, I'll remind you, an imperative verb is simply giving clear instruction or command. It, James makes clear, imperative verbs make clear what is asked to be done. So when, when someone's looking for clarity as to what the Christian life is to be a distinct and clear source for that study is the letter of James. You'll see in the weeks and months to come, James' goal is not just to simply inform, but to exhort and encourage his brethren. And I've seen it. I've seen many people over the last couple of decades as they've studied this letter, be transformed, be encouraged, be helped. My own wife, my bride of 19 years, Jennifer, is sitting down here. She doesn't like when I do that, but I want you to know who she is. Wave hi, honey. <laughs> I remember early in Jennifer's faith journey, um, her study of this letter, and I remember watching it just mature and transform her in the most amazing ways. And so blessed as a husband to see uh, your bride digging in and just growing in the Word of God. Um, so with that, you're probably going, yeah, that's a lot of talking about the Word and not preaching of it. So with that... By way of introduction for a long series ahead, let's dig in. As we do, let me pray. Father, 
What a joy it is to be here today, June 3rd, 2018, uh, with old friends and current family and new. And as you know, as I've been praying, what's so fun about meeting new people who come to our church is that it's not just like running into someone and yeah, they might you know, be someone you would get to know, but that, Lord, if they're blood-bought, adopted sons and daughters of God, sisters and brothers in Christ, that we're meeting and getting to know and linking arms with eternal family. People that we won't just go forth and for a season together, but for as long as you have us here and then call us home and, and then forever at your amazing feast, banquet feast, to celebrate you in glory and what a joy that is. So I look forward to getting to know many who are here and and uh, us being family and growing in your word and fulfilling this great commission to make disciples unto the nations and all that you called us to, Lord. As I often do, I pray today for conviction. I pray that you would not leave the people who have found their way here this morning alone, but you would love them enough this morning to upset them, to, to unseat them, to bring conviction that stirs and challenges That you would love them enough to make them uncomfortable, to not leave them where they are, but to take them to a new place in their understanding of who you are, of of who we are in Christ, and what it means to serve you, the living God. Lord, that it would bring about true confession of sin and repentance unto honoring Christ and proclaiming the gospel you've given us. It would bring about for some who maybe walk through the doors today who have not truly submitted to Christ as Lord true salvation, to, to, to die to self, to be reborn, to live to Christ. I pray in the power of your holy name that this is your will. And more than anything, Lord, just excited about where you're going to take us. Today, as we dive into verse 1, give us clarity, give us, give us application, and most of all, stir our souls with worship for you. We love you, and we pray these things in the powerful name of King Jesus. Amen. James chapter 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's stop there for a minute. We've got some good work to do here. First, James. Who is James? There's a, a, a number of men named James in the New Testament, and there's two in particular really um, worth highlighting as potential authors of the letter of James. One very prominent James is the son of Zebedee, the brother of John, who was an apostle and was martyred around 43 AD, according to Acts 12. Martyred for his faith. Another is James, the brother of Jesus. Very prominent leader in the New Testament. He grew up with Jesus He's converted after Jesus' resurrection. Immediately began associating with and and doing ministry with the apostles and became the presiding elder over the Jerusalem church. Because James of Zebedee, the first James I mentioned, was an apostle, was martyred so quickly, it is historically the belief of theologians and scholars, and I agree with them, that James, the brother of Jesus, is the author of this letter. 
One of the most helpful markers in investigating that and clarifying that is that when you compare, compare James' speech in Acts 15, 13 through 29, the speech he gives there, to the language and phrasing of the letter of James, we see amazing overlap and, and clarity. But what we must remember about the letter of James as we delve into it together is that the ultimate author of this letter we're about to study is God. Who's the author? This is God's Word. 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be completely equipped for every good work. God inspired certain prophets and apostles and men that he chose to author the books of the Bible, both the old and the new, to put down what he wanted us to have. 2 Peter 1.21 No prophecy was ever produced, no true prophecy, there's definitely false prophecy, no true prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That phrase, carried along, is God overwhelmed them by force. There's no doubt, no question that what we have in the original manuscripts is God's word, what he wants for us to know. The letter of James is God's divinely inspired word for us. God chose his representatives to be his mouthpiece to write the New Testament. He saved them. He taught them. He sent them. And he gave them through the Holy Spirit what he wanted written. We believe the letter of James is part of the holy canon, is the inspired word of God, and therefore it is worthy of our full attention and submission. James chapter 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we know who James is. What about what he is? What is James? Well, he starts by proclaiming what he is a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. The first thing James wants his readers to know about him is that he is a servant of God. And that's kind of interesting because that title, servant, is not necessarily popular by man, right? When we think about being a servant, that's not necessarily a good thing. But it was so positive to James and the other New Testament leaders and authors. We see it time and time again in the opening words of the epistles. In addition to the name Christian, the Bible uses a host of other terms to define or identify followers of Jesus. Beloved, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the chosen, the church, disciples, the elect, friends, heirs, the household of God, saints, sheep, sons of God, and on and on. All of these descriptions, each in their own unique way, help us understand what it means to be a Christian. And most of those I just read are positive by just typical reading of them. But the Bible uses one metaphor, 
one description, one title, more frequently than all the ones I just said above. And it's not one that you would expect. But it is absolutely critical for understanding what it means to follow Jesus. It is the title, Slave. Time and time again, throughout the passages of Scripture, sold-out Christians choose to refer to themselves as slaves of God or slaves of Christ. The title, slave of God and Christian, in their minds was saying the same thing. I belong to Christ. I serve Christ. You might be thinking, so what does that title, slave, have to do with James? James refers to himself as a servant. Surely being a servant is better and different than being a slave, right? Well, servant is not the Greek word that James penned in writing this letter. The Greek word that James wrote is the word doulos, which is the word slave. What happens here is what we see happen elsewhere throughout Scripture is the English translation washes the word. It makes it a little more palatable, maybe a little more modern. And so we get the word servant Whereas many times when you see that word, and think about all the times you've seen that word servant, many times what that word is really trying to say is slave. 124 times, to be precise, the original text declares the word slave, but the English translation uses the word servant. While both servant and slave are service-related, their difference is two worlds apart in that servants are hired workers and slaves are owned by their master. You also have to realize when you think of the word slave, we have a lot of human history that has a lot of different markers of slavery. There were many economies by which to be a slave, to be brought in, and to have that position was actually very life-giving for certain people in certain cultures. Our problem in the modern context is many times when we think of the word slave, we think of the African slave trade and, and all of the evil that came with that in the way of man's flesh being lived out. But you have to understand, throughout Scripture, you have many different uses and understandings of that word. We can begin to see why God uses the title dulo, slave, so common we are servants of God. This is true for the saved. But we are more than that. Think about this with me. We get to be slaves. He owns us. Our lives are His. But your flesh really wrestles with that, does it not? Even as I talk about that, you're going, man, is that even right? Because we, our flesh, our sin doesn't like the idea of being owned by anybody. We like control. We don't want to be submissive to anyone. And we, we surely don't want to be a slave. Man loves the idea of being free. But here's the thing. In all honor and respect and love, you're not free. Not one of you is. Every single person is a slave. According to Scripture, let me tell you what I mean by that. You are either slaves to sin and therefore to death, or you are slaves to Christ and therefore to life. 
When the Bible talks about Christ purchasing our freedom, are you, were you already thinking of that? What about all the texts that talk about that? We're free. We're free. Praise God in Christ we're free. That is something we do rejoice. It is the good news. But free from what? Free to be the Lord of my own life? That's not what the Scriptures teach. That's not who we are in Christ. We are free from the enslavement of sin. That's why we rejoice in freedom. We have to see that rightly. What we have to not do is take that in sin to mean something that I'm free to be the Lord of my own life. Like somehow God, through the blood of Jesus, bought my freedom. And now I'm kind of figuring out, do I want to choose him or not? Or I'm going to kind of make my own decisions. Maybe I'll sprinkle a little bit of church, a little bit of Jesus in my life along the way. That's not how the scriptures speak of us. That's way more control, power, authority than the word of God gives us. To be a slave of Christ is to be His. It's to be free from sin that leads to eternal death. It's to be bought and ransomed from that slavery into God's family to eternally reign with Him forever, enjoy Him forever. It it, it is good news. When you get what James and the other New Testament authors got about being a slave of Christ and why he promotes this first and foremost in his letter, when, when, that, when you begin to get that, it, you begin to see there's nothing better than to belong to Jesus. That's why he wants to say it first and foremost. John MacArthur is a, a modern-day preacher, pastor, author, and he wrote a whole book called Slave. It's a great read. I encourage you to get it. Um, you'll be blown away at how much this concept is, is, is truly taught and understood throughout Scripture. And this is a quote from the book. True, true Christianity is not about adding Jesus to my life. It is about devoting myself completely to Him. Submitting wholly to His will and seeking to please Him above all else. It demands dying to self and following the Master no matter what the cost In other words, to be a Christian is to be Christ's slave. The New Testament understanding of a believer's relationship to Christ is that he is the master, the owner, and we are his possession. He is the king and our Lord. And yet, how does our flesh still wrestle with this idea? Even to the point where you would enjoy, call him master, I remember years ago, I was getting to know Roger Spradley. He's a pastor at Valley Baptist Church and stirring up a friendship and a pastoral camaraderie with him. We were meeting in my office one day and talking about pastoral things and praying together. And it was just a, a sweet moment that God ordained in that uh, he led into a time of prayer. And he just said this He just said, Master. And he paused in that, in that title. For Christ just washed over us, and then he went into his prayer. And it, I remember it just struck me, stuck out. It was marvelous. It was, it was recentering. It, 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 it did a lot of what I pray today's sermon does for you. The gospel is not simply an invitation to be Christ's benefactor. 
we are guilty in our sin of making all this way too much about us. Instead, it is a mandate to become his slave. But when you understand what that means, there is nothing greater than to be his. Mark 10.45, Jesus said, For even the Son of Man did not come to serve, to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus, God the Son, puts on flesh, humbles himself to the form of a servant, gives up his life. Why? To ransom many. That word ransom means something very poignant, very particular, very important. Pastor David Platt says it this way, He took on a robe of human flesh, took on all of your sinful filth, guilt, and shame upon himself. He went to the cross. He paid the price. He stood in your place as your servant so that you could be redeemed. The word redeemed is a picture of slavery. When we talk about redemption, redemption is to buy something. When he ransoms us, he pays our ransom. He buys us out of our slavery to death because of sin. He pays a redemption price. Before Christ as Savior and Lord... Before you know him as such, we are all slaves to sin. We're in the snare of the devil, the scriptures speak of. We're in his grasp. And then Christ comes and does the work we could not do, pays the price we could not pay to free us from our bondage to sin, our, our enslavement. The good news is that proclamation of his work on our behalf to free us, to make us his Romans 6, 17 and 18, But thanks be to God that you were once slaves of sin, but have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Do you see it? You're like, ah, oh, that's been the text the whole time. We never necessarily stop to say, I'm always a slave either to sin or to righteousness, to death or to life, to the devil or to Christ. Before we're given saving faith, we're enslaved to sin, and we, will, and we choose sin, and we do sin, and it's all we know, it's all we do, is we do nothing to the glory of God. It's all our nature is inclined to. And after we're given saving faith, we, now we're enslaved to Christ, we're empowered now by the Holy Spirit to grow in obedience, to trust His Word, to do what we do unto His glory. Slaves to righteousness. Praise God that our Master humbled Himself, took on flesh, took on our deserved wrath so that we could be ransomed. It is our utter joy to be mastered by Jesus Christ. Why? Because it means you no longer belong to the enemy. You no longer sit in righteous, deserving judgment of eternal wrath. You've been ransomed. You've been freed. It is your joy to belong to Christ. This is the heart of the teaching of the New Testament. Romans 1 verse 6 basically says the heart of Christianity is to belong to Jesus. 
We belong to him for his glory. 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20. You do not belong to yourself, speaking of Christians, for God bought you with a high price. So you must honor God with your life. Some of you might be at this place in the sermon where you're going, man, all this buying language and being own language. I'm not for it. I'm not really, I'm, I don't know what this is all about. And I just will lovingly say, it is your sin that rejects that idea. It is your sin and your pride that says, I will tell myself something different, even though the scriptures, God proclaims that I am owned, enslaved by my sin. And that when that reality or the other is truly our only reality, when you understand what God has done to ransom us from it, this is why James, the other New Testament authors, and we consider it such a joy to be a slave of Christ, to serve Him, that Jesus is my Lord. I belong to Him. When you really begin to get this, we begin to understand this amazing, undeniable privilege it is to be His. And then it begins to change how we live our lives, how we manage our time, our talent, our treasures, everything. We begin to understand why it is such a great thing to be a slave of Christ. There is no greater position to be in than this. We want to be His possession. We want to be His people. To be bought by Him and to belong to Him is the greatest reality we could ever know. And I want you to see in this, I want you to see the love of God to do this. We've been fought for, bled for. The pages of Scripture are about the rescue of God's people for the glory of God. Listen to Peter and his words in 1 Peter chapter 2, 9-10. through 10, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Remember these words? Positive. We loved all this. Do you remember the next part? A people for his own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Amen? We are His people. A people of His own possession. If you are a slave of God, a joyful slave of Christ, God is your loving Master. A slave lives for his or her master. The master's purpose becomes the slave's purpose. The master's desires become the slave's desires. The master's plans become the slave's plans. Jesus said it through and through again. We many times just overlook it or miss it. That in all of his teachings, he's saying what it is to be a follower of me, to be Born again is to die to yourself. The whole purpose of repentance and belief is to turn from this sinful ideology that says, I'm the Lord of my own life, and to submit yourself to the Lordship of Christ. Christianity understood or defined another way is not the teachings of Christ. It's something else we've conjured up. 
And even in the simple opening of a letter like this, in this little phrase that we can fly right by, we miss the meat and the beauty and the power of what this is. I I need to ask you to just do some personal inventory. Are you more and more in love with the ways and the commands of God and less and less interested in driving your own life to fulfill your own desires? To not do so is to exchange the eternal for temporary. When I just I want to do it my way, and I'm going that that's just your sin. Going, I'm going to consume now and then be in wrath for forever. There is no like negotiation that comes later. We we won't be able to face the holiness of God to negotiate anything. We'll fall flat on our faces before Him in glory, and our only hope is an intercessor, the spotless Lamb to represent us as our advocate, the Lord Jesus Christ. See James' priority and passion to announce that he is a slave of Jesus Christ. It means so much to him. It's the first thing he wants you to know. And I say, I just ask you, is it that way for you too? I pray growingly it would be. What might it look like for us to truly die to ourselves and live for Christ every day, to no longer be in charge, but to submit to Him in every way? The journey of sanctification. Maybe you're going, man, I feel so far from that. And I would just say, the men and women around you that maybe seem to have a greater maturity and submission to these things once sat right where you're at. Felt the same way. And by God's grace by the work of the church and the teaching of the word. They've matured, they've grown, and you can too. Look with me at the next part. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. James builds on his words of proclaiming that he's a slave of God, but adds the clarity that he serves the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord and Christ are titles, just like I have a title of pastor or shepherd. But Jesus is his name. Let's start there. Jesus. In the opening verses of the New Testament, there's an announcement given to Mary and to Joseph. It was in Mary's womb. God's brought forth the Messiah, the promised one that mankind, the people of God for generations has hoped for, has looked for, has longed for. The angel says in Matthew 1.21, She will bear a son. And you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Do you know that that's what Jesus means? In Hebrew, Jesus is Yeshua, which is Yahweh saves. Yahweh, the name, the holy name of God. I am saves. God saves is the name Jesus. Power in his name. Christ is his most famous title. It's not his last name, Jesus Christ. It is a title. Greek word for Christ is Christos. It means the anointed royal figure. 
the promised Messiah. In Hebrew, the word is Messiah. Messiah and Christos, Christ, same thing, same office, same title, same work, same promised one. The Redeemer, the one foretold in Jewish history, would come to reconcile God's people with him forever. Who would rescue and enslave people from the shackles of the eternal consequences of their sin by buying our freedom from sin and placing us in God's eternal family by his perfect shed blood. Jesus is the one that we've been waiting for, the Christ. I'm here to tell you today that the Messiah has come, lived the perfect life, died, and rose again. We're not waiting. He's come. The good news is here. And those who have faith in God are are the witnesses, are to testify of this good news until he comes again. This is Jesus, who you must believe in to be saved. This is salvation. This is how we know God. Which brings us to the gospel. That gospel word means good news. It's the good news. There is no greater news in the history of mankind than the fact that God, in His mercy, chose to save undeserving sinners by the work of Jesus Christ. Let's break down that gospel briefly according to Romans Romans 11 is where we start rightly because the gospel begins with this. It is the gospel is the truth that God alone reigns supreme over all created things. Everything that is from him, through him and to him and is for his glory. That's Romans 11:36. The gospel is also the truth that man turned away from God's glory in sin to make our lives about our own glory. Represented perfectly by our federal head, Adam, and then followed suit every one of us in sin to deny God and His deserved glory to fulfill and live for our own glory. That's Romans 1 and Romans 3. You could read about that reality in those two chapters. The Gospel is also the truth that because of our sin, we deserve the righteous and eternal wrath of God. That man's prideful, arrogant ideology by which many cling to, to think that I'm generally a good person, I've done enough church or enough whatever to stand before God one day and I'll be good. And you arrive at that general thinking by looking left and looking right and going, surely I'm best, better than many of these other people, I'm going to be fine. The problem is, in sin... All that matters is how you compare to the holy perfection of God and His standard alone. And in that reality, we have nothing to bring. To the point where the Scriptures say that our very best, the best we do apart from Christ, is compared to filthy minstrel rags. That's the measure of our best work apart from Christ in light of the glory and holiness of God. So we rightly deserve His eternal wrath because of our sin. He is a good judge, not a bad one. Therefore, we are condemned rightly. That's Romans 6. If you want to read on that. 
The gospel is also God's amazing grace. That he saves sinners by the perfect shed blood of his son. That's Romans 3. And those whom God gives ears to hear and eyes to see, who repent of their sin and trust fully in Jesus alone for salvation, not Jesus and something else, he won't share that mantle. Nor will anything else compare, like we just said. It's Jesus alone. Who trust in Jesus alone for salvation and the lordship of their life. He justifies them. He redeems them. And makes us new. Blood-bought, adopted into his eternal family forever. If you weren't here yesterday, I'll just share a little bit of amazing good news. This is an exciting week for my family. For our church family. Not only because of this today and what we're doing, but uh, this Friday, my wife and I and our family get to adopt a little three-year-old girl that we've been fighting for for three years. Came out of the foster system, and Piper gets to become a permanent part of our family this Friday. Praise God. So we'll have something really special next weekend to celebrate in that, and you pray for us this Friday that in all of that, God would be honored that she would get to grow up in the light of the gospel and one day believe in him, but that in all of that, the gospel would be brightly on display. I pray that those of you who walk through these doors this morning somehow cling to some form of religion, maybe church practice, some form of maybe belief in God. What I just proclaimed it's the gospel. And you must truly and fully tie to yourself and be reborn to, to trust Jesus. It's, it's not just believe about. The, the scriptures are clear to say that even the demons believe that Jesus was God. The demons are damned forever to hell. They had a right knowledge about him, but they did not trust in him. And therein lies the eternal difference. To trust your life to Jesus is to die to yourself and give him your life. It's to no longer arrogantly stand before him and say, I'll add you, but I still want to be in charge. A true Christian says, I'm all his in every way. And it is my utter joy to be so. I pray if you walked in these doors an enemy of God this morning, I don't care how long you've been attending church, we're thinking you've got it figured out. If today the gospel is finally clear like never before, we want to rejoice with you. The command of Scripture upon you is to repent of your sin and believe in Him. And to do that means God is saving you by His amazing grace. Share that with us. We'd love to celebrate that with you. Much of the testimony of our people, the testimony of many years of thinking that they really got the gospel and... Um, with just a careful and, and full study of the Word, it just came into light in a way that was just transforming. And what a joy it is to see that happen. I pray that you see why it's good news to be unshackled from slavery of unrighteousness so that you can be a slave to the one true King unto glory in righteousness. Romans 6, 16-18, Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience... You are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death 
or of obedience resulting in righteousness. But thanks be to God that through that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient to the heart, that form of teaching to which you were committed and have become freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Jesus, Yahweh saves. Christ, the Messiah, the promised one. The gospel. Look with me quickly at Lord. Lord Jesus Christ is what James proclaims. The truly saved have found their greatest joy to submit to the Lordship of Jesus. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. James is saying, I have a Lord, I have a master, and it is my joy to belong to him. Let me ask you, do you call Jesus Lord? Not because of Christian habit, but because he truly is your master? Do you just call him Lord, but your life doesn't truly submit to him or his word? in the same way you proclaim him to be? If Jesus is the Lord of your life, if Jesus is your ultimate joy and identity, if Jesus is king, if he's your king, then you won't come to him with your ideas of what should happen and hold him in contempt if it doesn't go your way. You won't use modern day rhetoric or cultural ideals to negotiate or debate with God in his written word. You will lay down your agenda, your will, your life at his feet, and you will joyfully say to him, command me. If Jesus is your joy, the joy of your heart, the great affection of your love and life, you will do what he's saying you will do. You will obey and keep his commandments. If he is the one who defines your value and gives you your identity, you will worship him and live for him above all else. If this is Jesus to you, then you will come to him, laying down your life, your authority, and you will serve him all your days. Next, he says, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Quickly, to wrap up verse 1, let me point out who our audience is. Unlike many of the letters of the New Testament, the letter of James is not addressed to a specific church, but to 12 tribes scattered among the nations. They were dispersed. In other words, they were forced to live away from their homes. This helps explain why they're struggling and suffering. We're going to see throughout the text different things. Like in chapter 2, verse 6, rich people are taking them to court. They're being scorned for their, safe, for their faith in chapter 2, verse 7. Wealthy landowners are taking advantage of them in chapter 5. And so this is why next week in chapter 1, verse 2, James is encouraging them to remain faithful in the midst of their trials. Now here's why this is good news for you and I. Is because we too, according to Scripture, are exiles in this land and time. Why? Because we have been bought unto a new kingdom, to a new king, to a new eternal home. This is not our home anymore. I, very carefully at our ribbon coven, I tried not to use the term, welcome to our new home. Why? Because I don't 
I don't want you to think about, church, this being your home. It's not. This is a tent. It's a temporary space. It's, it's walls. It's a tool to be used for the proclaiming of Jesus' name, for the making of disciples. Our home is yet to come. Amen? Hebrews 13, 14, For here we have no lasting city. We seek the city that is to come. We're exiles. We're sojourners in this land. And we have to continue to have that mindset. Why? To fight our sin that causes us to say, but I'm finally going to finish my house or my dream car. We're finally going to get to go on that dream vacation and then somehow think that we fulfilled it. We get caught up in building our own kingdom. And not to say that there can't be vacations or eventually getting to that house that you love, but you've got to see it all rightly in the context that it's temporary. None of it will fulfill you. To build your life on those things is to build your life on stuff that will break down. It can be taken away. It will not last. Even the person you love the most in the world might not make it through the end of the hour. If your hope, if your love, if your joy is based on something in creation, and when it's gone or lost or broken, you will be undone. There's no hope there. There's no lasting joy there. Only in Christ do we have true, living hope and lasting joy. Amen? You've got to see that. You've got to make war with what our flesh is clinging to all the time to reorient our thinking unto these realities. James is blessing us, and, and, and even in our right scene of the dispersed Christians that he's writing to in this letter, that we relate to that. We're kingdom citizens of God's eternal kingdom. That's our citizenship now. If you're in Christ... You're a citizen of God's eternal kingdom, and you are an exile resident in the world's temporal kingdom. So don't be undone by modern-day politics like it rules you and defines you in every way. Don't be undone when your bank account swings or when taxes hit you in the face in a bad year, when you lose your job. Why? Because it's not your identity. It's not your eternity. Your eternity is grounded in Christ, forever held by His power. This is not our home, church. And we can relate. Christ can relate. What did he say? Christ took on flesh. Luke 9, 58, Jesus said, Foxes have holes. The birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He too was dispersed. He too was a sojourner. To give us something to follow. Why? Because in everything he did, he pointed to the glory and the eternal reality of God. Finally, his last word in this opening verse, he says, greetings. And that's how we'll end today. I'm excited about this sermon series. Because we who are on mission, we who are exiles in this land, among unbelievers, are in need of exhortation, encouragement, direction, in our faith and brotherly love. James sends his love to his adopted brothers and sisters who are dispersed with this letter, with his greetings. You ever have that really special moment where you see someone you haven't seen in a long time, and you look them in the eyes, and all you have to say is, hi. That's what he's doing here. Greetings. Love you. I'm I'm writing this letter to help you to reorient your thinking, to understand what faith at work looks like. 
Not faith that's just proclaimed, put in your back pocket, set aside, compartmentalized, but faith lived out. I can't wait to see what God's going to do in and through us in this series this year. I pray that in God's sovereign plan to bring you here on this opening message and opening Sunday that there's a, uh, an excitement stirred in you to maybe continue to go down the road with us and journey and grow and mature. And uh, what a blessing it will be. Amen? Let me pray for us and we'll proclaim his name as we close. Father, we thank you for this time and this space that you've provided. Lord, I thank you for your living word, for the, the opportunity that we have to study it, for the blessing that we have to study it without fear of persecution outside our doors or breaking through, like many of our brothers and sisters around the world who literally will meet tonight in the, in the midnight hour under candlelight because of persecution all around. I thank you, Lord, for how the gospel is changing lives. That in your great commission, when you said, I have been given all authority, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, that what that means is everywhere your elect, your people, take the witness and the gospel to your people around the world, no king, no ruler, no power, no, no persecution will keep them from you. Why? Because you have all authority. You have ultimate authority. You will have everyone you intend to have. And so we praise you. And I pray for anyone who came to this place today thinking that they were good, thinking that they were good enough, that they see the gospel with clarity, and that maybe in your sovereign plan, today's the day that the gospel comes to light like never before. And in that, spiritually, you open their eyes and you unstop their ears and they rejoice in the good news of what Jesus has done on their behalf. And it's irresistible. They, they have all, all conviction to turn from sin and being Lord of their own lives to trust in you forever. Lord, may that be a reality for many in the room today that you would love us as I prayed early enough earlier you would love us Lord to upset whatever conviction we've had of thinking that we're good you would bring conviction you would rock us today and I just pray that's happening I pray that you'd move and mold us unto what you have before us this day and if you would sovereignly ordain we have tomorrow that we'd wake up and serve you and make much of your holy name tomorrow We worship you, proclaiming the name of Jesus, our Lord, our Master, our God. Hear us now as we praise your name, in Jesus' name.